You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Beaton with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored with my two sexy, shining star, sensational <laughs> um, co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. So Christmas is in a couple of days. Are you both ready? No. <laughs> I never feel ready. I always feel like I'm missing something. If someone asked me like the day after, no, the Monday after Thanksgiving, oh, hey, is all your Christmas shopping done? I'm like, what kind of monster yeah. are you? <laughs> Who has their shopping done that quickly? <laughs> You know, it's funny. So like my mom is one of those people who like kind of shops through the year for Christmas. But I promise you, she does not remember everything that she bought. So you end up like she she ends up rebuying and you end up with lots of presents, which is, you know, very nice and generous and everything. But I really don't think it like actually serves the purpose of the people who actually tried to plan. <laughs> I have the same problem. I like never can keep track of what all I bought. It's terrible. Like a few days before, I'm like putting it all out, making sure everybody got their fair share and challenging. <laughs> I don't know what I would do nowadays without Amazon though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you guys have um, movie traditions around the holidays? I do. Okay. What's, what is the top ranking holiday movie that no holiday season is complete without? Granted, I think all three of us tend to do Christmas rather than other holidays. But what is the, what is the holiday movie that cannot be um, unobserved throughout the season? Mine is White Christmas. Like that is the start of my Christmas season. So like... When I pull out the decorations and we're putting up the tree and all that stuff, like White Christmas is on in the background. I've done that like ever since I was a kid. And it's, that's, I mean, we had a VCR tape of it and I'm pretty sure I wore out at least one of them as a kid. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Abby, what's yours? Well, I would say probably Home Alone because it's always something that I want to, I want the whole family to kind of sit down and want to watch together. <clears throat> and everybody always, we, even though you, I've seen it, I don't know how many times, you always laugh at the dumb humor and when they fall and slip and hit their heads. And so that's that's probably ours that we watch the most is Home Alone. What's yours, Carrie? Um, our family, it's it's kind of rotating. We don't have an absolute diehard. I do appreciate me some Grinch. And <laughs> I am, I'm not a purist. It can be the very, very original. It can be the live human being Jim Carrey one. It can be the new one with uh, Benedict Whats-His-Butt. Um, but any <laughs> any of those are fine. Although my husband will swear by Die Hard. Ah, uh, my husband uh. thinks that Die Hard is like the truest Christmas movie ever too. I just don't think of that as a Christmas movie, but I guess it does take place over Christmas. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is an ongoing 
discussion in our house of like, well, I mean, I guess I'll give it to you. I don't know that I've actually seen it all the way through. I have seen all of it, <laughs> but I have not seen all of it in one uh, one stretch. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. the other one that we tend to watch too is Christmas Vacation because there again, it's kind of a good, just kind of family last. Yeah. But I will tell you, if you've if you've watched the unabridged version and you've watched the one that's like on TV, they're very different. So just be prepared if there's little ears around somewhere because it starts out with every cuss word you've heard in the book for the first like two or three minutes of the movie. And I had totally forgotten that a couple of years ago. And there were little people around and I was like, oh my gosh, but still a funny movie, but it starts out pretty, pretty raunchy. <laughs> I didn't think you knew all those words, Abby. <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard them a few times, but just on, just on, uh, you know, Christmas vacation. That's the only place I've heard of. Well, I'm glad you only pull them out for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that now that to me seems entirely appropriate. Usually in the midst of putting up the trees when all the words, <laughs> you know, or a Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Susan, what questions do we have? All right. We're going to do a couple of them today. Our first one is, hello there. Thank you so much for your show, which has been a huge support to me and helped me get down the path of discovering a polyp in my uterus thanks to your episode on the endometrium. I've been suffering from secondary infertility for 18 months after a very easy conception of my first, who is age four. I'll do the polypectomy, but then I have to decide. I proceed with the polypectomy and then try naturally again or go through an egg collection cycle before surgery and then direct to IVF. All other indicators um, for both me and my husband are normal and there is no clear explanation for infertility until now. Would appreciate your advice as to weigh my options. Try again or go right to IVF. Thanks. So as always, size matters. And particularly (laughs) in this kind of situation, because there are polyps and then there are polyps. Yeah, that is true. Um, And so if she's talking about like, you know, a half centimeter or less, whatever, that's probably not the cause of your infertility. Now, if she's talking about a couple (laughs) centimeters, then, you know, I'll buy it. Yeah, totally. But I'll buy it. Um, so that's, that's probably the first thing that I would want to know is how, how big is this polyp? And, um, yeah. What do you think, Abby? Well, the one thing she said, she's either thinking about taking the polyp out and just trying our own versus going straight to IVF. And she didn't really mention, although she may have already done this, but, you know, in between that, she could also go just on some ovulation induction medication with or without insemination. So, I mean, that would be an option as well. Um, I think it depends a little bit, like Susan always says, it depends on kind of where you are emotionally and where you are physically. And and I don't know how old you are, um, but, you know, if you've been trying for 18 months, I mean, you know, if you click us route to pregnancy is IVF. So certainly no one would, you know, fault you for going that direction. Yeah, I think I think there's some gray zone in between, you know, trying naturally and and trying, you know, going straight to IVF, um, especially if there's no definable factor. Some of it is going to depend on your age and how many more kids you want to have too. You know, if you're working on number two, but you want to have four, that's that's a different combination than, you know, I'm working on my second and I'm going to be done and I'm, you know, 34 or am I 39 or 40? So, yeah. Yeah. The other thing to to consider is that if, if you were not on any birth control in between the birth of your small human being and 18 months ago, even though you technically don't consider that as trying, your fertility doc does because if you're not preventing, you're trying. You know, short yeah. of short of absolutely not having intercourse, which no one's going to blame you as the parent of a toddler. 
but uh, <laughs> like an infant, a toddler. But um, but that's the other thing to kind of throw in is that if you really haven't been preventing, this is actually more like four years of infertility, and that's a little bit different. There's um, we just read an article in our maintenance of certification this year that has a really stellar table that says if you are X years old and you've been trying for this amount of time and you have primary versus secondary fertility, this is the chance of you conceiving thereafter. And some of those numbers are really um, sobering and they're very helpful in making decisions about trying spontaneously versus not. Okay, I'll be quiet now. Susan, what's our next question? All right. Hi, Docs. Love the show. It's been everything um, to me during my IVF journey. My FET is coming soon. I've had five children naturally. My last child is is 12. I'm now 33 and I've had my tubes tied immediately after birth. What's the likelihood of transfer being successful after 12 years? I know the uterus is a muscle and it's had plenty of time to heal after three prior C-sections. So did she mention what her age was? She is 33. 33. So I would say a 33-year-old still has pretty good quality eggs. And, uh, you know, if you're going the round of IVF and you've had five children naturally, I mean, certainly there's no guarantees that you'll be pregnant. Some of the most disappointed patients I've seen after IVF are ones that had tubal ligations and thought their chances were like 100%. And it's not. But if you use a genetically normal embryo, I think in most of our practices, the success rate with a genetically normal embryo would be about 65%. Um, I do think, though, and I'm sure someone's looked at your uterus, but I think probably you need to have a saline sonogram or something like that, just to really look and make sure that your C-section scars have healed appropriately. Um, we tend to see that the more C-sections you have, um, the more likely you are to have just a scar that doesn't heal very well. And that muscle can be really thin and increase the risk of rupture. So I definitely would make sure that they look at that as well. Single embryo transfer only. Yes. Without a doubt. With three prior Absolutely. C-sections, don't mess with a double. Mm-hmm. And that fertility history too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Well, I don't know that I have anything to add beyond those two. Susan, do you have anything to chime in? No, I think that pretty much covered it. All right. So this episode actually kind of ties in with our first question, which is, you know, to what extent do you do you move forward with treatment? And so the little corner that we're going to focus on today is the types of treatment that you can potentially have with your OBGYN. And so, and that's before you hit the infertility docs. And so I'm going to make the disclaimer right up front that not all OBGYNs, A, like fertility, B, are good or have any interest at being good at fertility, or three, have the sometimes necessary equipment at their disposal to need to do it. On the flip side, for points points four, five, and six, some OBGYNs do, some OBGYNs absolutely love it, and they are very talented at it and they have a high interest in it. So a lot of this is going to depend on what your particular OB wants to do because OBGYN covers a huge volume of different care needs. And in the same way that some people are great at surgery, some people are great at babies, some great people are great at high-risk pregnancies, some people are really great at fertility, and then the opposite is always true as well. So that's the disclaimer. So along those lines, to kind of get the conversation started. I think the first thing you do is make an appointment with your OB-GYN and have a very honest conversation with them. Be like, you know, I'm trying to get pregnant. I'm concerned. And, you know, do you like, have interest in doing fertility care or do you prefer me to go straight to a reproductive endocrinologist? If your OB-GYN says you need to go straight to a reproductive endocrinologist, 
our advice, I'm pretty sure I'm going to speak for all of us, is go to a reproductive endocrinologist because there's something at play, either your particular history or the things that are at this potential particular doctor's disposal that they don't think that this is necessarily going to be the best place for you to get your fertility care. So I think just asking that question is a very reasonable thing to do. Well, and Carrie kind of touched upon this too. Not all OBGYNs are equipped. And by that, I mean, it's not their knowledge base. It's just, they don't, they're not set up to be able to see patients six days a week and sometimes seven days a week. Whereas, you know, I always tell patients, you know, sometimes they get really upset because they'll come to the practice and they won't see me. But I always say, you know, we're different than everybody else. We see you when you need to be seen, not necessarily when I'm physically here in the practice. And so, you know, I think with OBGYNs, it's really difficult for them to be be able to treat patients based on when a patient ovulates. And sometimes that means procedures in the office on a Saturday that just it's just not feasible or practical for them to do that. Mm-hmm. And your fertility office knows at what point you need to see a physician versus just an ultrasonographer or a blood draw or something like that. And so there are a lot of times when, like Abby said, you're not going to see your specific physician, but you you may not need to. Like, I don't need you to see me to get your ultrasound done. I just need the ultrasound done on that day. And then they're going to call me. I'm going to log into our system. I'm going to pull up those images and I'm going to look at them. Mm-hmm. And so... It's it's a little different and we are set up for that and we are primed for that. And a regular OBGYN office oftentimes isn't because their their schedules just run very differently. No, no fewer hours for sure, but just differently. Delivering babies and doing a lot of other stuff. <laughs> so what is the quick and dirty? Because this is not the focus of this episode, but what are the quick and dirty things where if they have been found in you, you are not going to mess with your OBGYN. Like what are the straight to REI things? Bad sperm, bad tubes. No ovulation. Well, actually you might. Depending, um, yeah, you might. Um, age would be a big one. If you're, you know, if you've tried for six months or so and you're 35 or greater, you probably need to go to an OBG, I mean, go to a reproductive endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. And I would make the argument that 40 and over, um, it's a faster cutoff yes. uh, to move to the, the REI and, and doing something more aggressive. Okay. So let's assume that someone has had all of her testing done and that her tubes are fine, the sperm is reasonable. So testing would be HSG to look at tubes or saline sonogram with tubal patency to look at tubes. Mm -hmm. Um, Having egg testing done, egg reserve, you know, an AMHD, three hormones, a follicle count. Um, Many OBGYNs don't have the capacity for a follicle count because ultrasonographers outside of fertility office really don't care, nor do they have a need to care. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you need to check the sperm. So so let's say all that testing has been done and you don't meet the criteria we talked about. So you've got tubes, he's got sperm, you know, all of the reasonable things, your age is not 46, where you would have to go straight to an REI. Um, what types of treatment do most OBGYNs feel generally comfortable with? Things like ovulation induction. So that would be basically for somebody who has irregular cycles is the, would be the primary person. Although sometimes we'll give ovulation induction just to augment what somebody else already does. So treatment with drugs that you probably heard of, Clomid that's been around more than 50 years is one option. Another drug called Letrozole or Femara is another option. And essentially they would kind of figure out, you know, whether or not you're actually ovulating. So you would take the drugs for five days during the month three through seven, five through nine, depending on your doctor. Um, and then usually you would have timed intercourse, meaning intercourse around day 13, day 15, day 17. And then most OBGYNs would probably want you to come into their office for a progesterone level. And that really tells them whether or not the egg really got released from the sac 
the follicle that eventually becomes something called a corpus luteum. The purpose of that corpus luteum is to make progesterone. So about seven or eight days later, it's at peak performance. And so we should be able to measure progesterone level. And that should sort of give us a little bit of a yes or no answer whether or not it worked um, for you or not. So let's talk about the 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 two specific medications in particular that the OBGYNs are going to feel most comfortable in prescribing. So Susan, what's one of those? So one of those is going to be letrozole. And letrozole is really the preferred drug nowadays for people who are not ovulating on a regular basis. Um, and if you're in an OBGYN's office, you're probably going to be doing maybe one or two of those pills a day for five days. And then they're going to do the monitoring like Abby described. Um, for people who were trying to do what we call super ovulation, so you ovulate on your on a regular basis, um, then I think either Clomid or Letrozole are probably reasonable options. I tend to use Letrozole um, because it has less side effects and less risk of thinning the lining of the uterus um, and a little less mood effects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which which people sometimes um, really appreciate not having and um, that type of thing. But, you know, Clomid is a tried and true drug. Um, it's been around for a really long time. And so a lot of times that that's really where the the comfort zone for general OBGYNs is. And as a general rule, I'd just add to that too. Most OBGYNs, at least in our community, and again, it's different, maybe different where you are, but in our community, usually they'll try for about three cycles. So if you ovulate on whatever drug they use for about three cycles and you're not pregnant, that's usually in our community when they kind of send you on to the REI at that point. If you've done three to six cycles, that's probably a good time to maybe kick your treatment up a notch. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good time to switch. So, Abby, what's the what's the mechanism? How does letrozole work? And then how does Clomid work? So letrozole basically is called an aromatase inhibitor. It inhibit, inhibits a little bit of your estrogen, decreases your estrogen level, and kind of tricks your brain into secreting more of the hormone FSH that goes down to your ovary, talks to your ovary, and helps the egg grow. Clomid sort of has the same end result. Um, it actually blocks estrogen. So it, it blocks estrogen in the brain and again, makes the brain think that there's not enough estrogen there. And so again, in response, um, you secrete FSH and it it makes it talks to the ovary and, and makes the egg grow. One of the negative points for Clomid is it can also block estrogen in your blood vessels and give you hot flashes. I've even had men that were on Clomid that took it and got hot flashes, which is kind of funny. Um, and then it also can block estrogen receptors in your lining and something like 10% of women they can have really thin linings. And I also tend to see sometimes if people are on Clomid for like three to six months, their lining tends to get thinner and thinner and thinner on the Clomid. Okay. And then Susan, you were talking about side effects from each one. So what are the side effects that letrozole is known for? And what are the side effects that Clomid is known for? So letrozole, sometimes you can have some mild hot flashes, usually not as significant as Clomid is known for. Um, letrozole does tend to make people a little tired. So I generally recommend taking it in the evening so you sleep through being tired. Um, and mm, I've had a few people that are achy, achy with letrozole. Mm-hmm, yeah, occasionally, occasionally some muscle aches. Um, Clomid is known for its mood swings. So sometimes those can be um, pretty substantial. Um, with 
any of these kind of, I mean, I guess this is considered a side effect, but realize that there is a risk of multiples. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Meaning you could be pregnant with multiple babies. Now, realistically, you know, the risks are relatively low. So when people are just trying on their own, your risk of multiples is about 1%. And with letrozole or Clomid, it's probably somewhere in the 7 to 10% range. Okay. So it's not huge, but it definitely can happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you have any health conditions that would make multiples an even riskier um, pregnancy journey, because being pregnant with multiples is a risky pregnancy journey. But if you have something like, you know, you only have a unicorn in the uterus mm-hmm. or you have like high blood pressure and having to take multiple medications for it or or pretty you know significant diabetes or things like this where like I said multiples might pose a huger um physical risk to you um <laughs> you might want to think about options yeah all right and then what when someone is taking clomid or letrozole um how do they know if they've ovulated or not so I always joke and say the poor man's way to figure it out is if you have a 20, if you don't usually have a 28 day cycle and you have a 28 day cycle, that's, that tells you, you probably ovulated. But I think most of us do, do one of two things. Most of us would either do what I mentioned before. We check a progesterone level around day 21, 22 or 23. Um, I think for me personally, if I'm pretty certain that the patient's probably going to ovulate on one of the treatments, I'll bring them in for ultrasound. Um, and usually we bring them in for ultrasound around day 13 or 14 of the cycle with day one being the first day of good flow. And the reason we do that is because ultimately, if the egg is just about ready to be released, we, can, we can't see the egg itself, but we can see the fluid-filled sac around the egg, and we know that they're about to, to release it. So um, I think you can do it either way, but I, the reason I don't typically bring people in if I'm not real certain that they're going to ovulate, it's just, it's confusing. If you bring somebody in and you don't see a follicle, you don't know, well, do we bring them in too early? Do we bring them in too late? Have they already ovulated? And I think just sometimes for the sake of less confusion, I usually make sure that somebody's ovulating first by checking progesterone levels. And then with the subsequent cycle, a lot of times I'll bring them in for ultrasound to look. At, at a general OB-GYN's office, there's going to be a handful of OB-GYNs that have the ability to have you come in for follicle scans. Most of them are not. Most of yeah. them are either going to just tell you, do timed intercourse on these certain days or use ovulation predictor kits. Um, pick your poison of the type you want to use, whether it's a stick or a fancy digital something or other, or you know all those kinds of things. I think we have some episodes on that recently, <laughs> um, and you know that type of thing. But if you're if you're working with your OB/GYN, um, you know there there's going to be a few that do follicle scans. Um, I have a few in my referring area that do, but most of them, I I don't think that's going to be their practice just because they don't have the flexibility. We all work on everyone's menstrual cycle, so it's kind of right. like we're always on somebody's menstrual cycle. So it just you know that's that's the way our we have to be work. flexible. Yeah. Whereas whereas in an OB Jen's office, you know they're seeing lots of well women exams, they're delivering babies, they're doing OB appointments. That that flexibility isn't really built in. Their flexibility is for other things and not necessarily that. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So um, with an ovulation predictor kit, does that work every single time, particularly when you're taking like letrozole or clomid or whatever? No, is the answer. It, nothing ever works 100% of the time. Yeah, it, it works quite often though. Um, and I usually, the patients a lot of times will say, well, I see this, this second line or the second bar. And what does that mean? Well, with a lot of those kids, it just means your estrogen level starting to go up. But what we really care about is the line that tells you you're actually just about to ovulate. So if you have one of those fancy digital ones, it's like a smiley face. And if you use the dip one, I think it's like instead of one line, it's two lines. Um, but that's basically how we can kind of figure out, you know, if you ovulate. Sometimes when people have irregular cycles, though, it's really tricky. So if you have PCOS, a lot of times your luteinizing hormone stays elevated consistently all the time. And so if you find that you do those, those even the digital ones, if you keep doing them and they always are positive, kind of the sign, is, you know, that's kind of telling you that probably you have a really high LH that's being picked up because the kit's so sensitive. So in that situation, you really can't use a predictor kit. It won't be helpful for you. Okay. So what do you do if you do your first cycle of either of those medications and you're predictor kit doesn't go positive or it's always positive, meaning it's not reliable, or you check that progesterone level afterwards on day 21 to 22, 23, and it's low, meaning you have not ovulated. You don't have a corpus luteum that's pumping out progesterone. What do you do in that case? What's your next step? You need more medicine. <laughs> Bring on the drugs. Bring Bump on the drugs. The um, so, and, and this is this is the point where, again, you know, kind of one pill, two pills, maybe three pills of either letrozole or or clomid. Your your physician may um, kind of bump you up to. Um, but if you're if you're not ovulating on whatever your doctor feels like is their kind of comfort zone as the maximum dose, that's when you really need to come see somebody like us because we can do one. We can do ultrasound monitoring, kind of know that these things are happening faster. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll do mid-cycle monitoring. It's like, oh, you have had absolutely no growth and you have 20 follicles on both ovaries and they're all about like, you know, six millimeters. We just need to give you more medicine. And sometimes we need to use combinations of oral plus injectables. Um, Most OB-GYNs are not going to be comfortable um, giving injectable medications um, for, for stimulation just because of that really does start kind of kicking up that risk of multiples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone who um, has been seeing their OBGYN for, for just simple care, what um, what's usually the max dose that the, the OB-GYNs in your area? And Susan, every time you say an OBGYN, uh, an OB-GYN, I just imagine a cute little cocktail with an umbrella made up. Me too. I see it. I always say OBGYN. I don't know why. I guess and it's just, it warms my heart things. every time I, I hear that in your sweet um, Texas lilt. So anyway, what are usually the max doses that OB-GYNs are going to go up to in these medications versus the doses that a fertility doc is willing to do? I would say in our area, it's up to probably we go one pill, two pills, three pills of clomid, and three pills is usually the max for most OBGYNs. Most OBGYNs will do letrozole 2.5, which is one pill. They'll do two pills. Rarely, rarely do they do three pills, but I, I know of one person that does that that's an OBGYN, but otherwise, usually they stop at two pills of letrozole. I'd say Texas does what Tennessee does. <laughs> yeah, we're we're pretty similar. Southeast I actually sticks together. <laughs> I, I rarely see 150 milligrams of three tablets of Clomid. Most people are like, yeah, if it's not working with two, off you go. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. So what beyond just clomid and letrozole can an OBGYN do in their office to help somebody out? Well, this is kind of outside of the office, but it can the process can start in the office. If they if you have an an ultrasound done and say you have something structurally wrong with your uterus, um, such as if you have a polyp or a fibroid interfering with the lining of the uterus. Um, again, some some general OBGYNs are going to want to do this. Some are not, but they can often do hysteroscopy to help improve the quality of the environment within the uterus to help improve your chances with some of those um, initial measures. So you can have a surgical intervention Sometimes if you maybe have um, evidence of endometriosis on your ovaries on ultrasound, um, again, depending on their their comfort level on doing those types of surgeries, sometimes OBGYNs will decide, you know, hey, you have a big endometrioma, maybe we should remove that, kind of evaluate the status of your endometriosis. Right. All right. So we've got surgical stuff. What else, what other stuff do they have at their disposal that can potentially help? Other medications, things that they can give after ovulation? Um, you know, well, they can give, they can support the endometrium with progesterone. So if somebody ovulates on progesterone, or if we check their progesterone level and it's above about two and a half or three, but it's less than about 10, um, ultimately we kind of feel like that that's They've ovulated, but maybe their corpus luteum is just not really pumping out enough progesterone. So a lot of times we'll support the corpus luteum by giving them some additional progesterone. And so OBGYNs can certainly do that and oftentimes do. Um, and you would stay on that medicine all the way through the first trimester um, of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Especially if you have irregular periods, your OBGYN may check your TSH level and your prolactin level. And if those are abnormal, they can medically treat those with medicines um, as well to get those back to um, more pregnancy-friendly levels as well. Mm-hmm. And also just looking at general health status. So in addition to the TSH and prolactin, which are defaults that we run when someone's got irregular periods, even simple things, looking at, looking at are you severely anemic? Do you have diabetes? Is your blood crush, pressure controlled? All of the things that you want to have in good condition before getting pregnant they're going to be able to go through and check because um, we'll occasionally find someone who has some unrelated infertility kind of issue. Diabetes is probably the most common of these where once the diabetes gets fixed, life gets a lot better with respect to conceiving. And so um, between that and giving a recommendation of, hey, losing some weight could be really beneficial. Those are also things that many OBGYNs are getting more and more comfortable with dealing, particularly with the weight loss uh, help. Um, and at least pushing you in the right direction to say, okay, let's try and work on X, Y, Z so that we can get you ovulating. You can do it on your own and you won't necessarily need the additional meds or technology or procedures that um, that can happen. But Carrie, you make a really good point. You know, even if you're somebody that you're just sort of starting to think about, well, I think I'm going to get pregnant or maybe we haven't been on birth control for a while and I don't know what to do next. Definitely check in with your OBGYN because kind of all the things that Carrie was saying are sort of under an umbrella of preconceptual counseling. And so OBGYNs are really good at looking at, you know, is your diabetes under control? We There's something we check called hemoglobin A1C, and we know it needs to be under a certain number um, before you can get pregnant. If you're on high blood pressure medicine, are you on the right high blood pressure medicine? Some of them can cause malformations in the baby. So those types of things, ideally, 
it's nice if you can check in with your OBGYN and get those things all straightened out before you really start to actively try um, because that can become a problem once you get pregnant. And I know we're talking about what can you get care at your OBGYN's office, but if you do have any other chronic medical conditions, seizure disorders, that's one that we see a lot. <laughs> Crohn's um, disease. Yeah. Schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, all yes. of those things. You, you need to talk to your physician who's taking care of those medical conditions and be like, hey, listen, I am actively trying to conceive. And I'd really like to be on the best thing now for my pregnancy. Um, sometimes we get a little pushback in that they're like, oh, well, just let us know when you're pregnant. And I'm like, if you're actively trying to get pregnant, the best idea is to get stable on something and not try to make those adjustments when everything's all kind of quirky at, in your first trimester. And one other thing to that end too, something that I know we all do when somebody presents to our office, but sometimes you may want to talk to your OBGYN about this as you start to get pregnant, and that's genetic testing to yes. make sure that you and your partner don't carry the same recessive trait. It really, you know, we we do a test every time when somebody comes in the office, or at least to offer it, and it always surprises me. I mean, I just had somebody this week who had a really rare condition, and they both tested positive for it, and. They say it only happens about one in 550 times, and maybe that's the case, but I, we found quite a few people that have the same recessive trait and had no idea. And so that's an issue, whether you're trying to get pregnant for one month or whether you've been trying to get pregnant for two or three years. So that's something that would be great to have done in your OBGYN's office. And, you know, usually I think the one great thing about the OBs, I think the OBs in our community, and I know in probably Carrie and Susan's community as well, we really, it's really a partnership. Um, so they kind of start the process in this way. Um, if it doesn't work, they send them to us. And then ultimately when a patient gets pregnant, we send the patient back usually at the eight, eight or 10 week mark um, to their OBGYN. So we really are in partnership. It's not a competitive thing at all. I mean, and you know, what the OBGYN doesn't do as part of the workup, or if they don't do some things, then we just pick right back up with where they left off. So it's really, um, really a helpful mutual symbiotic relationship between um, reproductive endocrinologists and OBGYNs. So really utilize that. Yeah. All great benefits. Um, anything else to add about any of the medicines that they use, any of the technology that they can use, any of the procedures that they can use, any of, any of that that y'all can think of? I so think the those are kind thing- of the big things. I mean, there, you'll occasionally have an OBGYN's office who will do like inseminations and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. was more common 10, 15 years ago. I think most of them have kind of um, pushed that off um, to the reproductive endocrinology world. And some of it depends on your region and how close you live to a, an REI and, and where those services are available. Um, but again, you know, back to what we started with, I think sitting down with your OBGYN and really having a conversation about kind of you know, what you're interested in doing in what they, you know, are comfortable in doing in their practice and and really making sure that everybody's on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Expectations need to be met on both ends, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I see a lot with um, people who come into my office who are on supplemental progesterone is that the concept is crystal clear and makes all kinds of sense. You need progesterone to support a pregnancy. You take it after you ovulate and you're good to go. The problem with it is if you are taking it too long, it functions like birth control. 
And so sometimes I see patients who feel very unclear about when they should start and when they could should stop taking the progesterone, particularly if they're not pregnant, because they they say, oh, I've got 28-day cycles, I'm really routine. And then they start the progesterone and it throws their 28-day cycles because while you're on progesterone, you're less likely to have a, a normal cycle. And so that's something to talk about with your OBGYN. If they're going to put you on it, say, all right, how do I know when to start and how do I know when to stop? So I that, probably have at least one person every two months come in who takes progesterone on a daily basis, which I can tell you is a really bad idea <laughs> when you're trying to get pregnant. Yep, it's great birth control. Well, the, the other <laughs> thing about progesterone too is if, you know, I've had patients that have come in and said, yeah, I'm having regular periods and, you know, you talk to them and they don't mention that they're on progesterone. And so you check a progesterone level and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, your progesterone level is great. And they're like, well, I'm taking progesterone. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to have somebody check your progesterone level, make sure that they are clear that you're also taking progesterone because we we check your progesterone level for, for different reasons. One is to see if you ovulate at all. And another reason to do it would be to see if we need to supplement it with more progesterone. And so just make sure everybody's clear that you're either taking it or you're not taking it because it can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes some of the fertility supplements that you can get, particularly the creams, have progesterone in them. That counts. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, make sure you know what's in all the substances, supplements, creams, anything like that that you're using. And let us know that you're taking those. <laughs> and let us know that you're taking We always appreci- appreciate that particular information. We're detectives, but sometimes we're not that good of a detective. <laughs> yes. Yes. It helps. It helps to know before you get the blood work back of, oh, I was taking yeah. this. Oh, that explains your <laughs> results. Okay. So... All right. Fabulous. Well, to our audience, thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So hop on by, leave us a like or a follow and say hello. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. And as always, this is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk with you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.